This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, October 31st, 2014, Episode 1, Concerning Poisoning by Toad. Hello and welcome to the first proper episode of Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm Patrick Lane, and if you want to know more about this podcast and its principles, there's a prologue episode available that lays out our mission statement. Um, If you've just come from listening to the prologue, then well done. That's probably the best order to go in. But let's get straight to our first text. I don't have a co-host or any guests, so there's no need for chit-chat, nor is there any news of note. Um, And given that this is our first episode, there's no feedback to gloat or cringe over, so that rather streamlines our options. But that said, our text for today does have a little bit of personal backstory to it that I'd like to share. Before Medieval Death Trip was a podcast, well, and actually it's still in the process of becoming a podcast as I record these words, um, but anyway, before, uh, before the podcast, Medieval Death Trip was a category that I'd set up on my personal blog, which I'm not even going to bother trying to promote because I haven't done anything with it in over a year and it's all a little bit embarrassing now. Um, but anyway, today's text was the first thing I posted there under the tag Medieval Death Trip. When I first read this little story, I knew I had to share it somehow, and I wasn't doing much with my blog back then anyway, um, so up it went. Only a handful of other posts ever went up under the MDT rubric, but the idea stuck with me and I began collecting and stockpiling other little scenes and episodes, and now I'm finally putting them into a medium that I think they might flourish in. And it seems fitting to inaugurate the podcast with the story that led me down this path in the first place. So our selection for today comes from a book called The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich, which was written sometime around 1173 by a monk of Norwich called Thomas of Monmouth. I'll be reading from the 1896 edition and translation by Augustus Jessup and the great M.R. James. Uh, This edition is freely available to all through Google Books. Um, And you can find full bibliographic information at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Now, The Life and Miracles of St. William of Norwich is a fascinating and infuriating text. It's quite engaging to read, and it features a level of almost novelistic detail that's rather unusual for its time. The richness of the detail may perhaps be due to the fact that Thomas is narrating events that happened locally in recent memory. Um, and indeed, some events in which he himself is often a player. Uh, So you get a lot of very authentic-feeling details and little glimpses of 12th century town life. But there's a big dollop of poison sitting at the heart of this text. William of Norwich is a saint by virtue of being a child martyr who, according to his legend, was ritually murdered by the Jews of Norwich. Yeah, it's that kind of story. If you've read the Canterbury Tales and recall the tale of Hugh of Lincoln, William's story uses that same formula. Um, Although, Well, in fact, his is the first child martyr cult of that kind in England, um, predating Hugh of Lincoln. Now, actually, there is something interesting at work in this text, because despite the fact that Thomas, our author, absolutely believes in the truth of the accusations against the Jews, 
The text itself is full of descriptions of how, after a child's body is found in the woods, rumor spreads like wildfire that only Jews could be so inhuman as to have murdered a child at Easter. And you actually get a strikingly accurate portrayal of a kind of mass hysteria stoked into violence by a rabble-rousing, self-aggrandizing public figure. Despite Thomas's conviction, there are cracks in this narrative that haven't been completely plastered over. And a modern reader can sense an alternative reality winking uh, at them through the propaganda. Uh, But I think perhaps we'll come back to this central aspect of the book in a future episode and consider it in more detail, um, including some of the alternate theories for this particular whodunit. But why dig into this particularly ugly matter at all? Well, because even though the life and miracles of St. William of Norwich could be used as a fairly efficient primer in medieval anti-Semitism, it's also packed with memorable scenes. I was working back through it recently to see if there was anything else in it that would be a good candidate for this podcast besides the story we'll be getting to in just a moment, Um, and I found tons of stuff too good to ignore. But as I say, the book keeps dampening one's enthusiasm for it with all these little veins of poison. Even once you get past the story of the murder itself and into the recorded miracles, it's hard to go for more than a few pages without some reference to the alleged cruelty and treachery of the Christian-hating Jews. And it just doesn't seem responsible to draw a significant amount of material from this book while eliding its central hateful theme. That said, I am going to kick that can a little ways down the road uh, and save the discussion of the murder uh, of William of Norwich for after this podcast has found its legs. Fortunately, our first reading from this book is able to slip past the anti-Semitic venom, um, though as it happens, it is all about poison. We're about to hear of the miraculous cure obtained by a most unfortunate woman who wound up on the wrong end of a cup of toad-infused beer. This comes from Book 6, which consists of a catalog of cures obtained by pilgrims to St. William's Shrine. There was, then, a woman of Bradney called Wymark, who in the time of King Stephen, when the days were evil, was given as a hostage at Gainsborough for her husband who had been taken by pirates. In his stead, she was committed to prison with three other women and one man, and there remained for long. These people, after long enduring miserably cold, hunger, stench, and attacks of toads, began to plan in concert the death of their jailer, believing that were he dead, they would be free, while as long as he lived, they were in danger. And, inasmuch as the keeper of the prison, who was the jailer, was accustomed to drink with them when their beer was brought to them, They took a toad, of which, as I said, there were many in the prison, and mixed its poison with the drink when it was brought as usual, and invited the jailer to drink, handing him at one moment the cup and death. But he, whether because God's providence would preserve him, or because he had some touch of suspicion, bade them first taste what they had offered him. Whereat, their craft being discovered, they grew red with confusion, and pale with fear, and stiff with terror. The jailer, at the sight, perceived that these signs pointed to some wicked intention, and turning the tables upon them, forced them all to drink the draught. Compelled whether they would or no to do this, they became compassers of their own death after contriving the death of another. 
Immediately the venom crept through the limbs of each, and all of them swelled up in so wonderful and horrid a manner that any man who saw them would be convinced that their skin must break. What more? The poison saturated them through and through, and their life was brought to the doors of death. The rest died. Weimark alone survived. The others were buried as dead. She was released as being thought to be at the point to die, but her life was spared, whether because she had taken less of the poison than the rest, or because the mercy of God was decreeing her salvation. Insofar as she had escaped death, she was happy, but wretched in that for seven years' space she was not rid of the monstrous swelling. All her limbs were inflated to an incredible extent, so that one would discern in her not so much the figure of a human being as the portentous form of some new monster. Her body consequently presented a hideous appearance to the beholder, and one looking at her would wonder that the skin so forcibly distended did not break. In this wretched plight, the poor woman, seeing that the swelling did not subside, repaired to doctors, and spent on them whatever she had. But the labor was lost, and the money wasted, though ultimately she was accounted worthy to find healing when she betook herself to the refuge of the divine pity. For when she perceived that she had been mocked and left destitute by the doctors, she thought she must consult the saints and visit their shrines. She accordingly visited many, and at length came to Norwich, and there determined to remain for some time and wait for the divine mercy to be procured by the intercession of the merits of the holy martyr William. After she had now spent some days there, on a solemn feast day, when according to custom a great throng of people had assembled at the blessed martyr's tomb, and she among them, she came forth from the throng and approached the holy and venerable sepulchre, and she obtained a speedy healing. For when she had kneeled down and uttered a short prayer, she pressed her lips on the tomb, and forthwith vomited all that poisonous discharge on the pavement. I can only describe it by saying that it was horrible, nay, unbearable, that there was enough of it to fill a vessel of the largest size, that the bystanders were constrained to leave the place, and the sacrist to cleanse the spot, and strew it with fragrant herbs. The poor woman left the church in haste and got rid of all that was left of the poison. The result was that in one hour's time, she, who, as I have said, had been swollen to an incredible size, now appeared as slim and healthy as if she had never suffered from a swelling at all. Being thus cured, she gave thanks to God and St. William, and betook herself to Rome, where she told Pope Adrian what had happened to her, and returning whole, she remained long in life to bear witness to the miracle. So that's our story. I think it's marvelous and about as perfect an example of a death trip story as one could hope for. One of the remarkable things about it, and you see this throughout Thomas of Monmouth's writing, is the abundance of little vivid details. Now, by the standards of the modern novel, this story is still extremely spare, but compared to a lot of medieval narrative, especially ostensibly non-fictional narrative, uh, I'd certainly rate this as unusually rich and approaching the novelistic. But as I was thinking about this story, those details nagged at me. They bring us right up to the big question of truth in medieval history. Thomas presents this as a true story, but how much of it do we believe, if any of it? Of course, if you're going to evaluate the objective truth of a story like this, the first enormous hurdle is that it's a miracle cure story. If you're not inclined to believe in miracles, then that would be your first indication that this story is bogus, 
and we could probably end the analysis there. To be honest, I've read so many of these kinds of stories by now that I hardly even notice the miracles. Frequently, uh, in fact, they just seem like formalities, um, and all the interesting stuff happens before and after the miracle itself. Um, And I think sometimes the authors feel the same way, um, and the miracles themselves get a rather perfunctory treatment, um, as we have in this story, in fact. There's no real reason for Thomas to begin anywhere other than one day a woman afflicted with a terrible bodily swelling came to the shrine of St. William, and many, many miracle cure stories begin exactly that way. But Thomas begins his story with pirates and prisons and toads, and that's how you start a story. But before we get there, let's just take a quick moment to address the fundamental plausibility of the central event of the story, the miracle cure. Now, my own feeling is that this one actually falls into the category of reasonably plausible cures. Or let's not say cure, let's say experience. The experience described here does not dramatically contradict natural science, especially if we do allow that a certain layer of exaggeration and hyperbole has been applied to whatever the original experience was. We have a woman suffering a rather mysterious ailment, a kind of generalized swelling and chronic pain. Putting my amateur diagnostician scrubs on for a moment, um, I'd hypothesize that maybe we're looking at some kind of autoimmune disorder or perhaps an allergic reaction. These are exactly the kinds of conditions that come on suddenly and mysteriously and have a tendency to depart or go into remission just as suddenly and mysteriously. Pain conditions are highly subjective and influenced by mental states, Uh, so I can imagine a real scenario in which a woman comes to the shrine, has an ecstatic experience, and reports an immediate improvement in her condition. If you exaggerate the degree of involvement and the original degree of suffering three times greater than they really were, Uh, I think you might well get a cure story that looks a lot like this. This is not in the same category of implausibility as someone regrowing a lost limb or being cured of a congenital spinal deformity. So if we're playing medieval mythbusters, let's chalk the cure itself up as plausible. Why not? Uh, And as I said, the cure is hardly the most interesting thing about this story. Let's talk about some toads. Setting aside the miracle, uh, one of the first things that raised my eyebrows when I started really thinking about and interrogating this story was the image of this prison crawling with toads. Back when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a naturalist, uh, but I'll admit I haven't quite kept up with it in the years since. Uh, Nonetheless, I have a certain sense of toad ecology, and dwelling inside dark man-made structures is not something I associate with them. Um, But wait. Is that what this prison would be? That's an interesting question, too. What does prison mean in the 12th century? Turns out that's a rather tricky thing. Uh, It seems that lots of types of buildings could be used as prison. The dank stone dungeon is just one variety. Uh, Also, a prison, as seems to be the case in this story, uh, need not be a governmental institution or part of the justice system at all. It was just a place where people could be held captive, sometimes for private interests, as it were. The jailer in this story could well be an independent contractor, so to speak, hired by the pirates to keep the hostages securely in hand. So what the jail was is very hard to say. It could well be a wooden shed or a stone tower or anything in between. 
but I think the details of the cold and the stench and the toads do suggest to me a kind of stereotypical dungeon. But really, whatever kind of structure it is, would toads flock to it and thrive in it? My basic research confirms that my initial intuition that toads rather prefer to live in woodland areas, in leaf litter and such, uh, is right. Though European toads can make shallow burrows, they aren't really subterranean animals. That said, if you Google toad in basement, you can find a decent number of people talking about finding a toad in their basement. So maybe some European listeners can write in and correct me if being afflicted uh, by the attacks of toads is a common occurrence when you venture into your dank basements and moldy woodsheds. So we have a few possibilities. One, the toads were naturally dwelling in the prison, which on balance seems pretty darn sketchy. Two, The jailer was deliberately populating the prison with toads as a form of punishment. I suppose that's possible, but it strikes me as unlikely. Uh, However, there is some potential support for this idea in a rather famous passage from the Peterborough Chronicle covering the year 1137, roughly the same time period that Weimark would have found herself imprisoned. This passage seems to be a favorite in Old English textbooks, so if you've taken an Old English class, uh, you may well have had to translate it. The passage reads, and this is from the 1953 Garmensway translation, it reads, When the traitors saw that King Stephen was a good-humored, kindly, and easygoing man who inflicted no punishment, then they committed all manner of horrible crimes. They had done him homage and sworn oaths of fealty to him, but not one of their oaths was kept. They were all forsworn and their oaths broken. For every great man built him castles and held them against the king, and they filled the whole land with these castles. They sorely burdened the unhappy people of the country with forced labor on the castles, and when the castles were built, they filled them with devils and wicked men. By night and by day they seized those whom they believed to have any wealth, whether they were men or women, and in order to get their gold and silver they put them into prison and tortured them with unspeakable tortures, for never were martyrs tortured as they were. They hung them up by the feet and smoked them with foul smoke. They strung them up by the thumbs or by the head and hung coats of mail on their feet, They tied knotted cords round their heads and twisted it till it entered the brain. They put them in dungeons wherein were adders and snakes and toads, and so destroyed them. So here we have an account of the use of poisonous animals as a way of uh, torturing imprisoned people that occurs during the reign of King Stephen, just like in our story, Um, which you might remember was set, quote, in the times of King Stephen when the days were evil, unquote. Uh, But there are reasons for skepticism even here. Some historians have argued that the so-called anarchy of Stephen's reign was exaggerated by monastic authors who had their own political reasons for doing so, and they used rather extreme rhetoric uh, to convey what were, in fact, relatively modest damages. There is a third possibility for where these toads come from, and that is that Thomas the author has put these toads in the prison in an act of imagination as the Peterborough chronicler may well also have done. Why might we suspect that? Well, there is an answer. Prisons being full of poisonous animals is something of a literary trope. More specifically, it's a trope of depictions of hell. The association of hell, or other ideas of a punitive afterlife, with poison is present in the Greco-Roman world, who specifically have mythological links between frogs and the afterlife, Uh, Poison torture is also in the Norse, Germanic, pagan domain of hell, single L, from which hell, double L, gets its English name. 
Many early Christian and medieval visions of hell show the damned souls being tormented in some way or another by venomous animals, usually serpents, which have their own devilish connotations, uh, but also toads. One nice example of this comes from a great text, uh, one I might have to feature in a future episode, um, another late 12th century item called the Tractatus de Purgatorio Sancti Patricii, or a tract concerning St. Patrick's Purgatory. Uh, This text describes the allegedly true story of a knight named Owen who went into a cave in Ireland and was taken on a journey through a purgatory space. Um, This is from a time before the concept of purgatory had been ironed out theologically. Um, And he sees souls being tormented by devils. Here's the relevant passage uh, as translated in the book Visions of Heaven and Hell Before Dante, edited by Eileen Gardner. They, the devils, Then threw him, the knight Owen, on the ground, and tried to nail him down like the others. But when he invoked the name of Jesus Christ, they were unable to do him further injury in that place, and dragged him away into another open plain. Here he saw a difference between these and the first. In the first place they had their bellies to the ground. Here all were lying on their backs. Fiery dragons were sitting on some of them, and were gnawing them with iron teeth to their inexpressible anguish. Others were the victims of fiery serpents, which coiling around their necks, arms, and bodies, fixed iron fangs into their hearts. Toads, immense and terrible, also sat on the breasts of some of them and tried to tear out their hearts with their ugly beaks. Demons also ran along them, lashing them as they passed, and they never let them rest a moment from their sufferings. Okay, we've had a lovely detour now through two other medieval texts. So what? Well, the point is that, among other poisonous animals, The toad is something of a stock image for depictions of hell. As such, when it comes time for an author to describe an earthly prison that they want you to think is particularly horrible, it makes sense that they might draw upon the imagery of hell to do that. But Patrick, you say, it's one thing if the toads were just mentioned as a bit of descriptive detail, but they're a vital plot element here. The whole story falls apart if these toads are fictitious. Well, you don't say. Um, Here's the thing. Maybe the prisoners did try to poison their jailer with a toad, but maybe they had the toad smuggled in or gathered it themselves in a courtyard, or maybe it was just there in the prison as one of those unusual things that happens. Even if we grant the presence of a toad and its use uh, as an instrument of poisoning a mug of beer, could it kill somebody, much less several people? Wikipedia tells me that the skin of one European toad does contain enough bufotoxin to potentially kill a human being. Uh, My admittedly brief survey of the medical literature shows that human fatalities from ingesting toads are quite rare. Um, But, well, let's let's give these would-be poisoners the best-case scenario. Even then, would bufotoxin cause someone to swell up horribly? Uh, The modern medical answer is, by all accounts, no. Uh, But there's a very good medieval reason why ingesting toad poison would make you swell up. Uh, And this is the notion that animals can transmit their own traits to people. You still see this idea in folk or traditional medicine, uh, particularly in the types of animal parts considered to be aphrodisiacs. Uh, Anyway, one of the things a toad does when it's feeling threatened is to puff itself up. Uh, This behavior is frequently mentioned in medieval descriptions of toads. So if you're poisoned by a toad, it makes sense, according to this logic anyway, that you would swell up just like a toad. Of course, poetic as that idea is, it does not follow the laws of nature as we now know them. 
But if you were a medieval person confronted by a woman with some kind of terrible swelling and did have to conjecture about what caused it, toads might well be one of the more obvious culprits. And where would a person be afflicted by toads? Why, hellish prisons, of course. Now, my own gut instinct tells me that there probably is some skeleton of truth in the narrative of what brought poor Weimark to the shrine of St. William. Uh, But it's worth noting that there's actually a relatively simple chain of reasoning that might lead one to produce this backstory, which on the surface appears to be almost needlessly complicated. Now, I can practically hear some listeners rending their garments and howling that it's absurd to ask any of these kinds of questions or to expect to find any profit in interrogating the verisimilitude of a piece of hagiographical propaganda. Why should we care at all if this story is faithful to some original reality? That's a fool's errand. You know, I can't exactly refute that. (laughs) And it's certainly not my plan going forward to try to debunk or confirm the historical or objective truth of the narratives I present. Um, But I do think that if one wants to try to get at the human experience that the rhetoric of this kind of storytelling is reflecting, it's worthwhile to start from a position of trying to take their claims seriously. If not as historical fact, then at least as collective memories. And then I think you're in a better position to start recognizing and even resisting some of their assumptions and claims. But before we leave the story, there is one detail here that has, for me anyway, a powerful ring of truth. That would be the detail of the woman spewing this incredibly vile vomit all over the shrine, and specifically that it was so bad that besides just cleaning it up, the monks had to sprinkle fragrant herbs all over the spot to counteract the smell. First of all, who knew that that cedar sawdust that school janitors spread over vomit stains had such a long history? And secondly, this detail just reeks of truth to me, because it's exactly the kind of story any worker would come back into the break room and just repeat over and over again to whoever walks in. You won't believe what happened at the shrine today. This woman, you should have seen the state of her. She just puked all over the shrine. And the smell, Godric and Renolf scrubbed and scrubbed, and you can still smell it. It's the kind of gross-out story you would tell to other monks who came visiting, It's a perfect little guess-what-happened-at-work anecdote. And the detail of the spreading of herbs to try to cover up the smell just smacks of lived experience. And those are the kinds of nuggets and odd little scenes that I hope to bring you uh, many more of here on Medieval Death Trip. This concludes our first proper episode. Um, I do hope you'll rejoin me for our next episode in two weeks. Or perhaps right now, if you're downloading this week's, months, or years in the future, uh, as I suspect the vast majority of you have done, since basically nobody knows this show exists right now. Anyway, I'll leave you with one final piece of wonderful but useless knowledge. Did you know that the vomit-covering, cedar-sawdust beloved of janitors the world over has a trade name? It does, and it's called Vogban. Capital V, lowercase o, capital B, capital A, capital N, Voban. And it looks like they haven't changed their packaging in 50 years. So now you know. And that brings us to the end of our first episode. I'll be back in two weeks with another 
In the meantime, you can find full bibliographic information about today's reading at MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at MDTPodcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll leave you this week with the words of Hugh the Chanter. Looking back, far or only a short way, is a great help to looking forward. <laughs>